1: The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of webmasterradio.fm is prohibited. All rise.
2: Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly.
3: Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Glad to have you here for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Broadcasting live here from Santa Monica, the Internet Law Center. Um, please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. And uh, we're going to start with a, a very distinguished scholar on privacy, um, Lori Craner, who's an associate professor at the Carnegie Mellon Institute and um, as well as a founder of Wombat Securities. But she's also um, the director of their Scilab, and we're going to hear a little bit more about that. Um, but in the second half hour, we're going to be talking about, since um, we're easing into Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about a cyber Thanksgiving and some of the websites that we're thankful for. And uh, we'll, we'll hear what some of the people have provided me with some of their favorites, and we'll, we'll talk about that, and maybe they'll be useful to you too. But do we have Lori? Yes. Lori, thank you for joining us. And um, Lori, you were, we were talking earlier. She's with Carnegie Mellon Institute in um um, university in um, Pittsburgh, and that's uh, very. It was founded by um, Carnegie himself, and uh, we, and um, then you have the Mellon, and now there's a major donation by Bill Gates for a new um, facility for the which department was that?
4: Computer science.
3: And um, so um, you guys have some pretty heavy backing. Um, so you've gained a lot of attention recently for a report you did on why Johnny can't opt out. Why don't you tell us about that?
4: Okay. um, So, uh, we've been looking at all of the privacy tools that have come out uh, recently that are supposed to help people uh, protect their privacy when they go online, and in particular to opt out of or block the tracking associated with behavioral advertising. And we've heard a lot from the industry that uh, these tools um, are successful and that uh, they are a good solution. And perhaps we may not even need any regulation in this space because we have uh, successful tools available. And so we decided to conduct a research study to find out whether these tools actually work and whether they're useful to people. And so um, we're we're actually working on a series of reports, but this first one is really focused on the usability of nine specific tools that are designed to limit online behavioral advertising.
3: And those nine tools are those the browser tools plus the NAI tools,
4: um, as well as some uh, browser plugins that can also uh, block the uh, behavioral advertising.
3: And just for listeners, when I said it, I'm referring to the Network Advertising Initiative, which has a, an opt-out um, mechanism on its site, um, so you can opt-out of behavioral t- targeting. But although there's been some question about how effective that has been. Um, so in looking at those tools, what would you find?
4: Well, we found that they're all fairly difficult for people to use, and that people are, for the most part, not able to use them effectively. So we found people uh, would try to use them and um, couldn't figure out what the settings meant. There was lots of jargon. Um, also, people would install them and they'd say, "I have this set up to block everything," and in fact, they had misconfigured it and it was blocking nothing. Um, so they weren't. The tools are not actually providing the kind of privacy protections that people uh, want.
3: Is there a continuum? Is there some you know um, browsers, for example, that are, are easier? To, to utilize the tools than others or is it pretty much consistent in terms of it's a challenge either way
4: um, yeah so I've gotten a lot of people asking me well you know you tested nine tools which is the best <laughs> um, <and laughs>
3: or least worse or whatever <laughs> which
4: is the least worse and you know it's a tough call because they're all, they all have problems in different ways And so um, it's hard to say, well, this one is the best. I mean, they all have strengths and weaknesses. Um, In our uh, paper, we actually put a nice table showing the strengths and weaknesses of each one. Um, So I I think that uh, the the tools that are built into the web browsers, um, you know, Firefox is far easier to use than Internet Explorer's privacy tools. But Internet Explorer's privacy tools, if you could figure out how to use them, do a lot more. Uh, so there are these trade offs.
3: Right. You indicate Firefox that um, participants didn't know what protection DNT provided. Um, and whereas in the Internet Explorer settings, um, you found that um, default settings provide some protection, but the configuration was confusing and it had jargon, and participants couldn't figure out how to block all third party cookies.
4: Yeah. Yeah, so you know, in Firefox, it was pretty easy for people to figure out how to configure it, but they were skeptical about what that was actually doing. IE um, gives you a lot more, but nobody really understood what it was giving them or what, how to configure it. Um, but if you do nothing with IE, you don't configure anything, by default you actually have some privacy protection. Now,
3: you had done another study just a few months earlier on ad choices, compliance with online behavioral advertising, notice and choice requirements. And that's part of this this series of studies you're referring to, right? Yeah. What Um, what, What did that report find?
4: Yes, so uh, there we were looking at some of the industry self-regulatory guidelines um, that say that companies that are in the online behavioral advertising business or who have uh, websites where they post behavioral ads from third parties, uh, there are some guidelines that they're supposed to follow. Um, and uh, We decided to do kind of a census of um, some of these companies to see how well they were following the industry's own guidelines. Um, And what we found is that um, while there there certainly um, uh, has been an uptake in following the guidelines, um, especially in August, um, where the the industry had a self-imposed deadline and we did see sort of people scurrying to comply with it, um, there's still a lot of gaps and a lot of companies that do not seem to be fully complying. um, So, for example, the um, behavioral ads are all supposed to have a uh, icon on them. There's this ad choices icon that looks like right. a little triangle. And there are a lot of them that don't seem to have it. Um, it seems to be kind of spotty. Um, there, there are many of them that have the icon that it's not clear that they really are behavioral advertising. Uh, so um, it's just just a lot of inconsistency uh, for even following these guidelines.
3: Now last week we had Paul Marinello from the um, National Advertising Review Council and um, you know, one of the things is that they're mon- they're actually monitoring compliance with the behavioral targeting opt out, and um, they recently cited several companies for failing to comply. And so, um, you know, hopefully that that you know that will provide some greater incentive um, to comply. I, I think all the ones they cited um, agreed to agreed to, agree to uh, adhere to the recommendations. And of course, if they don't, it gets forwarded to the FTC. Now, have you been consulted with by, by by the FTC or Congress on your studies?
4: Uh, I have had some discussions with the FTC staff about some of our studies, um, as well as with congressional staffers.
3: And um, what, what, is, what is the reaction from the Hill to this?
4: Well, whenever I talk to people on the Hill, they seem actually very eager to get actual data um, on these topics. And uh, so I, I think um, – they, they've been very interested in our studies because they, they actually collect empirical data which uh, can inform policymaking.
3: Which I, I, you make a good point because a lot of the debate on, on privacy is kind of um, either theoretical in that, well, what, what we think a user might do or based on how we, th- we might act in those circumstances. And um, I th- you know, is your experience that there is kind of a, a lack of data in this area?
4: Yeah, there's definitely a lack of data in this area. Um, I, I think you know, the, the companies that are building tools are, or doing these programs um, have not released a whole lot of data. Um, from our usability studies, given how bad things are, I wonder if um, they're even actually doing usability studies. Uh, if they were, <laughs> they'd probably have things that were more usable than what they have. Um, and and uh, some of this data is really difficult to collect. Uh, when we tried to do the census of of uh, the advertising and how well they were um, following the guidelines, one of the things that we wanted to know is if it's a behavioral ad, it should have the icon. If it's not a behavioral ad, it doesn't need to. So, how do we figure out which are the behavioral ads or what percentage of them are behavioral ads? And that is data that you know, nobody either nobody has or nobody's telling.
3: Oh, plus, so what you do? do you had to make that determination yourself.
4: Um, So we we tried various ways and we we, uh, eventually um, decided we we couldn't make an absolute determination. Um, There were certain categories of ads that we decided to eliminate from consideration because we had good reason to believe they probably weren't behavioral Um, and so we could exclude those. The rest of them we don't really know. Um, So we looked for industry sources that would give us some idea of what percentage should be behavioral. Um, and we did find um, multiple industry sources that had an 80% number. Um, as soon as we put that number in our paper, uh, the the industry was all over us telling us that that number was way off, um, but nobody has given us a better number. So we don't really know.
3: Now, um, you, were ta- you mentioned that there's a lack of data, and, um, you know, you so were kind of surprised to the extent there's a lack of data. But um, are are there any policy or, um, any, or any aspects of policy in place or policies being proposed now, you think, being driven by assumptions that aren't, aren't supported by the data you've seen?
4: Um. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of the discussion right now about self-regulation um, is, uh, is based on the notion that self-regulation could be an effective approach. And I think uh, if you're going to make that assumption, it would be good to really have data that says it is an effective approach. And most of the data that we've collected in these studies, as well as some others we haven't talked about yet, um, really questions whether self-regulation is an effective approach.
3: Well, I guess it's it, it's effective to know regulations, and to, you know, getting um, one of the problems I see in, in privacy is that there's so many different interests. It's such a broad topic that it, it, deciding on and implementing regulation is going to be very difficult. Yeah. So, so that that that's a very easy fallback to have until you can actually you know kind of you know, climb the climb the hill and figure out what it is that you need to do to regulate the area. Yeah. Um, yeah, I worked in, in the uh, in the '80s. Actually, I worked um, when I was in law school. I worked with a banking lobbyist, and you know, in back, back in the '80s, they were still talking with about Glass Steagall reform, which didn't happen until the mid '90s. And you know, I, I sometimes wonder whether we're going to see the same type of scenario on the privacy front, in that it's going to take. You know, already we've been talking about some of these issues now for four years at least. And it's going to take four to eight or maybe, you know, ten years or more before this is, there's really a consensus and, and, and a will to move forward.
4: Well, I've been working in this space for 15 years. And <laughs> the, the, the FTC held their first online privacy workshop, the best that I can tell, in
3: 1995. Wow. It's interesting, yeah, just the way how this... It, we've been talking about a lot of the same things, and um, it. But it, I think what happens is that the you know the the privacy threat du jour just keeps changing, and then keeps it you know, gets more complicated. You know, we had our very first show actually. We had on Chris um, Chris Olson, and he was talking about the roundtables that the FTC had, and I said I got the sense that you know that what happened was is that you had a a new you know, kind of a new Obama FTC, and the, initially the the view was to kind of pick up where, where we left off in 2000, but then realized that the whole world had changed, and you weren't regulating a 2000 world. You know how these things called social media, um, data had been more commoditized than ever before, and he said, "You're right. I mean, we we really were trying to get our arms around what what's going on in the you know the, in the universe, so to speak." And so that's 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 an ongoing challenge because, you, you know, this is a moving train, a very fast-moving train. Yeah. Now, one thing I thought was interesting that you did was um, you you, comp- you wondered whether, did a study on whether privacy should be approached like a nutrition label.
2: And, right. And,
3: um, and so explain that to me. How would, So what would a, a privacy label look like? Because I actually think that could be the most consumer-useful way mm-hmm. to approach something if you had some kind of, you know, brief but standardized um, disclosure?
4: Yeah, well, so uh, everybody knows that privacy policies are pretty much useless for the average consumer. Right? We have you know these very long uh, texts that take a long time to read. We did a study on that as to just how long it would take people to read them, and it's a really long time if people really read them all. Um, and uh, they're full of jargon that people don't understand and they change without notice. And so the these privacy policies are for the most part really failing consumers Um, and so we look to well what other types of um, notices do we have uh, for consumers and nutrition labels come to mind Um, and so with a nutrition label this is something that is standardized so I can take two boxes of cereal and put them side by side and I can compare them and find out which one has more sugar and which one has um, uh, more calories and all of that and it's it, it they're comparable once I learn how to read it once then I can apply it to everything I don't I'm not gonna encounter new terminology every time I read it um, and uh, it it also uh, you know everything's always in the same place um, so you know right now if I read a privacy policy and you know I want to know whether this company is going to um, uh, be uh, uh, you know selling my information um, to insurance companies or something like that. Um, You know, I can read through the 10-page privacy policy, and if I don't see any mention of that, I can't necessarily conclude that it doesn't happen. Um, It may be that they just didn't talk about who they sell information to. Um, Whereas with a nutrition label, there are certain things that it has to say there, and if um, if the amount of a substance is higher than a certain amount, it has to be there. Um, and so it it, uh, it it becomes clear, you know, yes or no, whether or not you know this this uh, food is part of the product that, that I'm purchasing. Right. Um, so so these are all things that work really well for um, nutrition labels, and we said, well, can we apply this um, for um, privacy as well? And so we have developed a bunch of different designs and we have done focus groups and surveys and laboratory studies to test them and have found that they actually work pretty well.
3: Really? Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'd like to hear more about that. We'll be back with Lori Craner after these messages.
1: This webmaster radio.fm program is presented by AFCONEvents.com, A-F-F-C-O-N, Events.com. Dive deep into five days of digital marketing education and information at AFCON's inaugural Digital Marketers Cruise, March 17th to the 21st, 2012. Be a sponsor, exhibitor, or registered today at AFCONEvents.com.
2: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
1: Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents the 2012 Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to www.iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is January 31st, 2012. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry today into the Web Marketing Association's 2012 IAC Awards. Go to www.iacaward.org now.
2: Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717.
1: That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. From the creators of We Build Pages, experience the power of the Internet Marketing Ninja. An exclusively trained army of nearly 100 in-house ninjas. Mastered in the arts of social media, local marketing, content creation, SEO reporting, and yes, link building. The Internet Marketing Ninjas will release a new version of their legendary tools to the public. Visit imninjas.com. The ninjas are coming.
2: webmasterradio.fm welcome to the place your competitors get their edge jump on it, we're here for you 24-7 the best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here this is the Cyber Law and Business Report only on
3: webmasterradio.fm and we're back with Lori Granite and she was talking um, just a few minutes ago about using some type of, like, nutritional label for websites for privacy purposes. And um, she's actually did some research that said that it was quite effective. And um, what was the model that you followed, Lori?
4: Um, So what we ended up with was a uh, tabular format. Um, So we have a table and... uh, down the um, side of the table, we list a variety of different categories of information that a website might collect, uh, such as contact information or preference information. Um, and then across the top, we list a bunch of things that they might do with data, um, such as you know, use it to complete your transaction or marketing um, or sharing it with other companies. And uh, so then each of the cells then uh, is a combination of type of data and what you're going to do with it. And uh, in each cell, it can either say, um, we do it all the time, we never do it, we do it on an opt-in basis, or we do it on an opt-out basis. Um, and uh, there are a few other things, but that's that's the, the main body of the uh, privacy nutrition label.
3: And... Um- And the response was, when when you said it was effective, it was effective because people were pleased with it, people understood it. Uh, What does that mean if it was effective?
4: All right, well, we tested it in a few different ways. Um, First, we conducted focus groups where we showed it to people, Um, we showed them different versions, and we got that positive feedback that people said, yeah, I like this, I'd like to use it, I can understand it. Um, But we didn't stop there. Uh, We conducted um, a series of studies where we showed people privacy policies in various formats, including this nutrition label format. And we asked them essentially reading comprehension questions about the privacy policy. Um, and uh, so, so uh, people were in different conditions. Each condition had a different policy that they saw. Um, and we could measure how accurately they could actually answer these questions and how long it took them to answer it. And then at the end, we asked them some questions about how much they liked it. Uh, and what we found is that um, the nutrition label format uh, overall performed a lot better than reading full-length privacy policies um, and we also experimented with a few variations on the nutrition label including something that was um, standardized but just in paragraphs of text uh, right. and we found that the, the, t- the tabular format had some advantages.
3: No, It's, it's interesting you know, that approach because that that's happening to an extent even in the more detailed, voluminous policies. Um, you're seeing this kind of two-tiered policy um, following the Federal Trade Commission and the bank regulators coming up with a template for graham leach bliley disclosures and which followed you know, somewhat of a <coughs> – excuse me, a table approach. And um, so I think there's a use for that even one as – obviously what you're talking about in a very concise format – um for a uh, initial disclosure but also just in terms of how policy should be laid out in general so there is somewhat of a uniformity so consumers can access i mean you go to a website and it can say privacy policy it can say disclaimer it can say legal it can right. say or nothing
4: <laughs> right right exactly it's, they're sometimes hard to find or they're buried in in the middle of a long term of service so
3: if you went to the hill and um you know, I guess was it Chairman Upton of the House Energy and Commerce Committee said, "You know, Lori, we'll, we'll do whatever you want us to do. Tell me what that is." <laughs> <laughs> Remember that they don't have taxing jurisdiction, so you can't influence that part. But, uh, <laughs> what would you tell them?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't think I have all the answers either. Um, I, I think uh, I I would probably um, mandate some standardized privacy policies. Um, I'm not sure that Congress should be the ones to decide what those look like, um, but I think um, they could empower the FTC to come up with the standardized privacy policies um, and, and require that they be used. Um, I think we also probably need some baseline uh, privacy legislation that would say that that some things are just off limits, um, that you know, there's... There's only so many ways that you're allowed to invade people's privacy. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think it's important to to draw some lines. Um, and I mean, right now, I think there's a lot of interest in self-regulatory programs, but I think that if that's the direction that we're going to go in, we need to make sure they have some pretty sizable teeth, um, because I, I think right now they don't. You know, even with what's going on right now with the ad industry trying to self-police itself, so when they find people or find companies that are not complying, they are going to report them to the FTC, which is wonderful. Except that for the most part, those who are not complying with the guidelines are not actually violating any law, Um, and so it's not entirely clear what the FTC can do with that. Um, it, the FTC has, has to really stretch to find a way to actually go after them at this point point, um, you know, and you know, so far the threat of that apparently has been good enough but I'm not counting on that working over time
3: there's that old saying when, um, when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail and if the, right now if the only tool um, available to the FTC is really self-regulation then that's going to be very, very popular. And, um, but I think you know, the, historically, I, I think partly because of the, the Internet being a less regulated um, domain area, um, has, I think that's partly what's contributing to it. Do you, Woody, what's your thought?
4: Yeah. I, I, well, I mean the, the FTC has um, – you know, they have their mandate from Congress and they can only do you know, what Congress has authorized them to do. Um, They also have their appropriation from Congress and, you know, their staff is pretty small. And so they're they're a law enforcement agency um, and they they are the primary law enforcement agency to do privacy enforcement in the United States. And they are woefully understaffed to actually do that. Um, And so if they can rely on industry self-policing, they're going to get a lot more bang for their buck.
3: And what have you seen? Have you looked at other countries in terms of how they're approaching this in in terms of standardization? Is that getting much traction overseas?
4: Um, That's an interesting question. So overseas, uh, most other countries have a very different privacy regulatory framework um, to begin with. And so they they actually have privacy commissions in many other countries who um, are specifically tasked with uh, dealing with privacy. And they have Privacy laws, so that some of these things um, that we're seeing in the U.S. are just not legal in some other countries. Um, but that said, I think they also are struggling with enforcement because um, they're not staffed to actually, you know, enforce all of the types of violations that they're seeing, um, nor to deal with this in the international environment that we have today.
0: Right. And so,
4: I've heard some interest. Uh, even overseas, in standardizing notices um, and in you know standardizing standardizing the way that we deal with um, uh, consent and with notice to consumers,
3: I think someone we had one guest once who said the uh, the stereotype is that the U.S. has laxer laws but greater enforcement um, compared to you know the Europeans, for example, and um, you know the Europeans have you know tougher laws but they don't have the resources or the, or the will to enforce. And, um, but now you have, you said this is a ser- part of a series of studies you're releasing yeah, on this um, behavioral targeting space. What, what's your next report to come out?
4: Uh, well, we have one we're working on right now um, that is looking at what consumers actually understand about online behavioral advertising and about opting out and the ad choices icon and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the short answer is, well, they don't actually uh, understand very much. Um, and so, so that that's something we're working on. Um, we're also uh, doing a, um, an online survey to see uh, when people see that ad choices icon on an ad, do they notice it? What do they think it means? What do they think happens when they click on it? Uh, if they do click on it, can they figure out how to opt out? Things like that. Um, and we're doing a study looking at... Um, the, uh, the effectiveness of the tools in terms of when, when you've opted out, do, does the behavioral advertising actually seem to stop?
3: And uh, so, you, you have, don't have any, you have any preliminary conclusions on any of those or you want to want to hold, up, hold off on that for now?
4: Yeah, so, so the only one that I have preliminary conclusions on is, is basically the consumer understanding of the ad choices icon. and I would say that that's extremely low right now.
3: And um, in general, though, consumer understanding of icons—how does how it compare? you know, not just the privacy one, but just general icons that have been used for disclosure purposes. Obviously, this misty yuck," I think most people understand. But you know, other disclosures that we've seen, has there been great awareness in general, or no?
4: Well, so icons, by their very nature, um, are very small, and they—they're supposed to uh, show you some big idea in a very small space, and so. Right. Um, In many cases, they are not intuitive, and you would not be able to tell what they meant. You know, like the recycling icon, we all know what that means, but if you arrived from Mars and had never seen it before, you would have no idea what it means just by looking at it. Um, And so a lot of these, we have been taught over time what they mean, um, and that's in part done through actually advertising campaigns to teach us how to use these icons.
3: Now we um, we talked earlier about um, this being Thanksgiving, and I, I, I gave you a little bit of warning. But um, what, are there any websites that you're particularly thankful for, or resources on the internet you're thankful for, or that you, know, you just you would highly recommend to others?
4: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I don't really have just one go-to place. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty thankful uh, just for the World Wide Web in general. Um, it's just such such a vast resource, um, and it, it just seems to permeate our lives these days. Um, you know, my, my kids have... Are of the opinion that you know there is nothing unknowable anymore. You know, anytime they ask me a question and I don't know the answer, they're like, "Well, mom, just Google it." Um, <laughs> so, so that's kind of a funny thing.
3: <laughs> Parenting by Wikipedia, but um, <laughs> we actually had uh, earlier um, on our show we had Bill Powers, who um, I don't know if you're familiar with his book Hamlet's Blackberry. Um, Bill was a, a, a reporter for the Washington Post and National Journal. And um he was living in Cape Cod, you know, telecommuting um to Washington and um he they he and his wife, who also was a former Washington Post reporter, um, they would take um what they call Cyber Sabbaths. On the weekend they would have no internet, no texting, no any of that. And um he's actually found it quite rewarding but he it made him evaluate how to what extent the technology has taken over our lives. And uh, it's you know, it was a best selling book on the uh, last summer um, but uh, it, it's hard to imagine you know, just spending a weekend or even you know, much longer without that technology.
4: Yeah, it, it is hard to imagine at times.
3: But I want to thank you for joining us. Um, or anything um, In terms of if people want more information on what you're working on, where, where would you send them to?
4: Uh, well, so they can go to the website um, for our laboratory, um, which is cups.cs.cmu.edu.
3: And you're at Carnegie Mellon University and they're called the Tartans. Why is
4: that? um yeah well we we have this whole uh, scottish theme going on here oh
3: okay i was wondering where that came from
4: yeah yeah so our mascot you know is a uh is a piece of plaid fabric <laughs> 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 not very ferocious <laughs> no actually we be, recently adopted that's... the scotty dog as well
3: <laughs> oh, okay yeah i was gonna say that it makes it hard for the mascot to get in fights at games but yeah <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us, and and please uh, let us know when you have your next study. I think this is – you're doing great work in this area, and it's fascinating, and um, we definitely want to keep following what you're up to.
4: Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. We'll
3: be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the
2: Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
0: Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for
1: happy hour. Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success.
2: I personally recommend certifiedknowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC
1: needs. Learn, optimize, connect. Be smart. Go to certifiedknowledge.org now. Two, one, boost to ignition
2: ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy to use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with AscenderCart. Learn more about what AscenderCart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T
0: dot Landing page optimization expert Tim Ash.
1: Many of you. Hey, quick question, Bennett. Yeah. When were you going to bring up this whole thing about me mentioning your name? Oh, um,
3: I'll mention. I'll. When we come back on the hour. I'll just mention. Um, talk about. We've talked about uh, um, net neutrality in this week's, um, uh, this month's e- e- e-commerce law and policy. There's a, a feature article on net neutrality by.
1: Oh yeah. Ask it it to me like a trivia question. I have something planned. Oh, really?
3: Yes. So I should ask, so um, were you aware that there's an –
1: okay, I'll do it that way. And do you know who the author was? Okay. All right. (laughs) Thanks. For your listeners,
0: Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel, only on webmasterradio.fm. Try my SEO tool risk-free today. Go to mySEOTool.com. MySEOTool.com.
2: WebmasterRadio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm
3: and we're back. This is Bennett Kelly here in Southern California, home of the Major League Soccer Champions Los Angeles Galaxy, who won one one to nothing in a, a rainy MLS Cup on Sunday night. Um congratulations to all there. Um and so um we have Thanksgiving coming up, and since many of you are probably easing your way out the office if you have not already, um we, we're gonna do a little bit of a less substantive um, discussion for the second half hour, but first um, we've talked a lot about net neutrality on on this show. We had um, it was someone from Free Press on talk about um, the pros, and we had an you know, extensive discussion with um, one of the leading opponents of the uh, of net neutrality about two weeks ago. And um, just wanted to let you know that in this month, um, Brasco, in case you're wondering, in this month. Um, e-commerce law and policy, which I'm sure all of you listeners get yeah. uh, or, or get on a regular basis, huh. um, the, the feature article is on net neutrality. And uh, do you know who it's authored by?
1: What, uh, is it of Kelly? Yes, it is.
3: <laughs> so um, we now do cyber law and business support for 200 And um, the question, Brasco, is what websites are you thankful for?
1: Website, thankful for Facebook, uh, thankful for dig. I was trying to learn that. Thankful for T M Z. and Thankful for webmasterradio.fm you... because it takes of care course,
3: but of course, yes. <laughs> that was a given. Of course, TMZ sometimes falls into T M I. But um
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, as long as we're not on there, right? We're not being listed.
3: That's right. That's good. Well, I don't know. There's, in LA, there's the whole saying that any publicity is good publicity. So, um, but I have you know, no scandals yet to talk of just yet. Would you, but um, like, we're working on it. Would you really <laughs> and, uh, want to be
1: one of those celebrity lawyers that represents a Conrad Murray or a Lindsay Lohan? Would you? I,
3: I prefer not. But, <laughs> <laughs> any event, um, the, um, I thought we, I actually asked that question to a number of people. And, and sup- I was surprised actually how. It's, it's difficult, I think, to, to pick one site or two sites that really stand out, but um, just because, you know, the whole, and, you know, as our guest pointed out, it's the whole web that people are thankful for, having access to all this wonderful information. But I thought I'd highlight a couple of sites that you know, I've, I got feedback from and some that I actually um, think very highly of. Um, let's start with slideshare.net. Are you familiar with that one, Brasco?
1: Absolutely. And I uh, I definitely can um, attest to why that's such a popular website and why you would definitely um, love it. It is an efficiency tool
3: and a time suck. <laughs> it's an efficiency tool in that what the site is, is it provides um, people post PowerPoints on you know, whatever the topic may be. And it has a broad library and catalog of Know, presentations on all sorts of topics, especially, I think, the strongest on presentations on presentations, which, you know, may seem kind of um, navel-gazing, but it's actually quite useful in terms of how to make a presentation, and which is why I, I call it a time suck, because every time I'm there, I find myself looking at, you know, what are the top presentations of the day and... Um this you know that so many of them are so well put together and uh, interesting that I often find myself spending more time there than I intended to. Um so I would put them on my list. Um someone gave me a website that they, they look to, especially um in this this season we're in now, um and it's Politifact. And um it's put put out by the St. Petersburg Times, but <coughs> I think it's um put together by some people at MIT as well. And uh, it's more or less one of one of the fact checking sites, and there, there are several out there and um, so I think it's good to have um, familiarity with, with at least one of them um, during this campaign because I think that there's going to be a lot of um, back and forth, and um, I think the facts might bend just a tiny bit <laughs> um, but unlike last night, we won't be disclosing any state secrets, so um, I'll leave it at that. Um, Another site that came up um when I asked around um was actually when well, we've actually even had this the founder of it on is um killer startups. You may recall we had Gonzo Arzuega and he's his new venture is startups.com, which is kind of like a groupon for startups. And um but killer startups is a is a newsletter that lists, you know, every day um two to as you know many as five um, really interesting startups. Most of them web 2.2, web 2.0 type of enterprises, and often have um, applications that are free. And I've discovered so many useful applications just through that newsletter alone. That you know, the, the time I spend reading that that newsletter is more more than paid back, and you know, on a multiplier effect. And so. I, you know, it may you may think, why should I follow these startups? Well, one, you, you see all these new technologies, you see all the products that are being developed, and um, and also th- these are things that are useful applications that you can use in your everyday life. And so, I'm a big fan of killer startups. Have you ever gone there?
1: No, I can't say I have, but I'm going um, to browse on it right now.
3: I, I recommend it. Another site, um, I recommend it, but I hope you don't have to use it is um, the Internet Crime Complaint Center. And um, and that's where you go when you put in Brasco's real name. Just kidding. <laughs> um, the Internet Crime Complaint Center is, is something, it's a joint effort of the FBI and um, Department of Justice. And what it does is it creates a single point where consumers can file complaints about being you know, harassed or other crime that's occurring on the Internet. And they will refer it to the appropriate law enforcement authorities. So I've actually had experience with, with clients where you know, we've had to make a report, and within a matter of a day, we, we were contacted by local law enforcement. And so um, it's it's for real. Um, and you know if if they don't respond, well then it may be because they determined it made some determination that they there's no need to respond. But um, you know basically if you if you submit. A credible and you know a claim that does involve law enforcement um they will address it and so and it's also useful too to report through that mechanism because i think they also draw come um, statistics from that as well which can then be used you know for policymakers to really get a sense of you know what is going on, on the internet and so it's a useful site to watch um both for you know what's going in and what's coming out in terms of reporting um so i'm a big fan of that one and uh so another site that was um, that's come up and people have talked about, well, I'm, is um, I'm a big fan of Kayak um, in terms of going um, for travel. Now, I think there are a number of um, websites that aggregate different airline and hotel offers, but I just like the features of Kayak. I find it to be very useful in terms of your ability to manage. Both the, you know, for example, for flying, you know, the exact time as opposed to just afternoon, morning. I found that a very useful feature, and it was also well to customize your search, um, you know, for hotels to customize it by distance from where you want to be, um, and availability, of, you know, customizing by other options. And you know, granted, a lot of other sites have either had have something like these, or are slowly catching up to it. I know Bing's travel site is very close to Kayak, um, which I'm sure really was made Kayak very happy. But um,
1: what about Google? I, Do you, have you tried what Google's tried now with their own flight tracker, their own flight system as well? No, I haven't tried that one. Google. Do you com, it? Yeah, Google.com/flights. And actually, for some of the flights, we've actually tried scheduling. um, we have used that, and I, I you know, it supposedly they had a, originally with with using a software from I, ITA was a certain company, right? So you could actually. The, oh, go ahead.
3: No, that, that, I think that's the the shared industry software,
1: and now they offered something whereby you can now buy flights off of Google. Wow, that was just recently put out there.
3: Very good. I'll have to check that one out. Another On site um, I can't
1: live without is Google, by the way. Yes, I'm a Google man.
3: I know, Google. <laughs> it, 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 it's funny, you have know, this Google Earth product, and it, it's kind of a the name of a product but also a statement. <laughs> it's a Google Earth. But um, one site that um, I, I'm a big fan of and got a couple others to cover, I like Metacritic, and Metacritic, is um, what it does is it's similar to Rotten Tomatoes, but it, what it does is it takes reviews of you know movies and um, TV shows and DVDs and you know CDs, and it creates a numeric score based on um, the, the various critics' response. and I, I found it pretty useful and um, and so often you know, I pick my movies, I, I'll take a look to see how it's doing on Metacritic. And because a movie sometimes looks attractive and it has a a twenty out of a hundred score, you know, I, I think I say thank you. You know, you just saved me from <laughs> from you know wasting you know twelve whatever fifteen dollars whatever it is today. But um, have you ever used it, Brasco? Or you use Rotten Tomatoes? Or
1: I use Rotten Tomatoes. I have. And then what I but what I normally use right now is Fandango. Fandango. I can actually. I like the fact that it is pretty easy to tell you is it a movie worth watching or not. And Showtimes. and if I yeah. want to buy it, I can actually order ahead
3: they they're they're actually a good company, although I, I should disclose I have actually worked with them but oh. um okay. another site that we've, we've um someone mentioned to me, and actually hopefully we'd love to have the uh the the founder of it on our show is donor are you familiar with that one no it um it's a website. basically a, you know, the problem in terms of you know, giving to elementary schools is it, it's hard, you have to give to the school system. And what Donor Choose does is they, they're the nonprofit and they will schools submit requests for supplies to them. and they'll put it up on their site. And so you can buy you know, your donation, you know it will buy microscopes for some poor school in Mississippi. And um or something similar to that, you know, writing implements or whatever. And um and then you actually get notes from the students back is um so it um that say, oh actually I've um, just been handed one by the um someone here who's a big fan of them and let me see if I can read one. Um well, they have drawings, um <laughs> And see if I can find a good one to read. God, you sound um, like Rush
1: Limbaugh with your holding your paper with the formerly nicotine nicotine stained fingers. <laughs> you never heard him on the radio do that kind of thing where he just goes. No,
3: I it's it, this may surprise you, but I, well, I don't that's listen right. to them you're that not, often.
1: I know, you're not a, that's right, you actually uh are of a different uh, political persuasion.
3: But I actually do you know, I do listen um to them from time to time just to see um, what they're saying It's just and, entertainment um, value That's
1: all But please go ahead
3: I, I do I, I know And I know you have Your own show sometimes Where you re- <laughs> Espouse other views um, up, yes. But any event Well this was This set of Thank you notes Was very pretty But very low In terms of statements But um, It says um, We hope they illustrate The impact of your Generous gift. The students would love To hear what you thought So please consider Leaving them a message On their project page well, um, we shall do that and um, let you know what happens. But um, I think I thought it was a great idea, and, and the site is founded by Craig from Craigslist. And um, Craig is actually thinking big on a number of areas in terms of how, you know how to use now that he's made you know, all the money he needs, um, how to use his talents and to um, you know for social good. And this is one of them. He's actually he, he's one point. I'm not sure where he is on this, but I know several years ago, he was actually talking about developing a Marshall plan, you know, through private funding for you know the West Bank and Gaza, you know, hoping that you know economic development could bring you know peace to that region. So he's you know he's a guy to watch, obviously, because he's been pretty damn successful so far, but also because I think that um, you know he's going to continue to um, you know. We're going to see interesting things from him, and in this case, you know, from the um, the side of you know the nonprofit space, and you know, we've already highlighted some of them. You know, ProCon.org is an interesting site that um, I think a lot of people are finding useful. You know, kind of a, a very detailed and reliable Wikipedia in essence. You know, Wikipedia sometimes can be you know, skewed. Um, just because it's based on whoever chooses to implement you know, input information, whereas ProCon.org, as you know, we had them on our show. You know, they actually take do extensive research on both sides to, f- to present what they feel is a a fair picture. And um, so, I would recommend them. Now, one thing, I, just as a as a lawyer, I should um, maybe highlight one or two sites that I think lawyers might find useful. And um, <laughs> one would be the suicide hotline No, just kidding um the other, the other would be um there's a website called um the National Conference of State Legislatures um and the um they have a it's, I think it's ncs org, and there you can find uh, they have information on state laws on a variety of the very current topics so i'd recommend going there um, as a way to kind of bone up on um, the state of state law and some hot breaking issues, but um, we're running low on time. But I want to let you know that next we played earlier um, clips from the um, the FTC video on the blogger guidelines. We're going to have the video star herself. Mary Engel next week on um, cyber law and business report. So I hope you'll listen to her as we talk about the blogger guidelines and the compliance therewith. Um, and so it's going to be a very interesting show, but more importantly, um, this is Bennett Kelly with the internet law center here in Santa Monica, wishing all of you a very happy and safe and um, enjoyable Thanksgiving weekend Thanksgiving t- um, and be thankful for all the good that you have And we're thankful that you've been listening to us this last hour. And I hope you join us next week when we have Mary Engel from the FTC. Um, Until then, court is adjourned. And um, be safe and have a good weekend.
0: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes